On the 6th of August 1945, the United States dropped a nuclear weapon on the Japanese city of Hiroshima, killing 140,000 people. Three days later, the US dropped a second bomb, this time on the city of Nagasaki, and it killed many more tens of thousands of innocent civilians. 77 years on, the risk of nuclear war is still very much with us. Nuclear armed states admit to having some 13,000 warheads. The US has at least 5,550 and Russia has 6,257. And it's threatened to use them in the war in Ukraine. And nuclear bombs today are much, much bigger than the ones dropped in 1945. The largest US nuclear bomb is 60 times more powerful than the one that destroyed Nagasaki. Capitalism has taken us to the brink of nuclear annihilation and the need to resist has never been greater. To discuss these crimes against humanity perpetrated in 1945 and how to prevent them happening ever again, I'm joined today by Phil Griffiths. Phil is a historian and a member of Solidarity. You're listening to The Sound of Solidarity, brought to you by Solidarity. We're a revolutionary socialist group in Australia And if you'd like to find out more about us, our website is solidarity.net.au. I'm David Glanz and I'm recording this episode on unceded Wurundjeri land in Narm or Melbourne. So welcome, Phil. Hi, David. So what happened in Hiroshima on that morning in August when the American B-29 bomber Enola Gay dropped the bomb? Well, the bomb exploded about 600 metres above the city. And as you said, it killed about 140,000 people. Actually, one of the reasons the bomb was so murderous was that the government in Hiroshima had seen the American plane go overhead, saw it fly away, and got people to come out of the air raid shelters that they'd been hiding in. And of course, that that just meant that so many more people were out in the open air uh, and, 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 and were murdered. Because the bomb was actually on a parachute, which was, meant was on its a descent was very slow. Its descent was slow, and yeah, and then it was time to bomb it, to, to explode at a certain uh, altitude. Okay, so I think it's worth understanding that the bomb uh, was a very, very different bomb from anything that had gone before, and it killed people at Hiroshima in four ways. The first was that it generated a, a fireball which expanded to some 300 metres wide within just one second. Just about everyone outside within a kilometre of ground zero was instantly vaporised, and they were the lucky ones. Tens of thousands of others suffered terrible burns that didn't kill them immediately. The second way it killed people was that it generated a blast wave which demolished over two-thirds of Hiroshima's buildings, shattered windows 15 kilometres away and was felt 60 kilometres away. The blast wave also combined all the fires started by the fireball into a firestorm that lasted for over a day and incinerated almost everything within four and a half kilometres of ground zero. So thousands of people were killed by the blast and tens of thousands of others suffered from flying glass and objects buildings falling on them and so on, and many died in the weeks and months after. The third way that the bomb killed people was radiation. People within a kilometre and a half of ground zero 
suffered extreme levels of radiation which damaged their organs and destroyed their bone marrow, meaning their bodies could not resist infection. It's actually quite interesting because uh, the first Western journalist to arrive in Hiroshima was the Australian communist uh, Wilfred Burchett, who was working for the London Daily Express. And this is, this, this is just some of what he said in what was the first independent reporting of the bomb in that newspaper on the 5th of September 1945. He said in Hiroshima, 30 days after the first atomic bomb destroyed the city and shook the world, people are still dying mysteriously and horribly. People who were uninjured by the cataclysm from an unknown something which I can only describe as an atomic plague. He then goes on, he talks about the city not looking like a city that's been bombed, but one which a giant steamroller had rolled over the top of. He talks about meeting doctors in the hospitals. They gave patients who were suffering from uh, this radiation uh, poisoning vitamin A injections. The results, he wrote, were horrible. The flesh started rotting away from the hole caused by the injection uh, of the needle. He goes on to talk about the effects of um, the radiation on, the, on uh, the Japanese scientists who came to Hiroshima because, of course, as soon as the bomb happened, the Japanese government sent its scientists to try to work out what, what had happened and what to do about it. The scientists became victims of the bombing. So they hadn't been there, but after they, they came, they found that they had dizzy spells and headaches. They got minor insect bites. These developed into great swellings which would not heal. They, their health deteriorated. Then he writes, they found another extraordinary effect of the new terror from the skies. People had suffered only a slight cut from a falling splinter of brick or steel. They should have recovered quickly. Instead, they developed acute sickness. Their gums began to bleed. They vomited blood and finally they died. And so these are all some of the effects of the radiation poisoning from the bomb. Almost everyone within a kilometre and a half of the bomb died within three months, almost everyone. And of course, then tens of thousands of others died outside that area. Thousands of others died from leukemia and other cancers in the following years. The emotional effects were also extremely severe. Survivors saw so many people dying in agony, screaming for help, asking for a sip of water, but the survivors were unable to help. In fact, anyone who had a sip of water, actually it, it, it made their condition worse because of the way that their organs had been damaged. Almost all reported, all these survivors reported, feeling that they were also dead, although still alive. And then finally, the bomb destroyed the city's capacity to help the sick and injured. Almost all the hospitals were destroyed and 90% of medical personnel were either killed or disabled. And you can imagine that a nuclear bomb landing on a city today would be far more destructive of a city's infrastructure. Now that was just one bomb, or two with Nagasaki. If there was any kind of nuclear war today, in any situation where a significant number of bombs were used, there is actually a fifth danger we face. And that is what scientists have called a nuclear winter. 
According to International Physicians for the Prevention of Nuclear War, the smoke thrown up into the stratosphere by 100 nuclear weapons the size of the Hiroshima bomb, and that was a small bomb as you said in today's terms, would represent, that 100 nuclear weapons would represent about 5% of the current stockpile. They could form a layer of smoke that would shut out about 10% of sunlight, threaten agriculture worldwide, and put over a billion people at risk of starvation. If there was a more substantial nuclear war, you could get 150 million tonnes of smoke in the stratosphere, which would cut the surface temperature of the Earth by 7 to 8 degrees, and rainfall by 45%. Now, just to put that in proportion, the average depth of cooling at the depth of the last ice age was around 5 degrees. So a serious nuclear war, not one involving every weapon, would actually be more, more destructive of humanity, of the ecology, than was the last ice age. In other words, any significant nuclear war would see many, perhaps most people in the victorious country, die from the effects of their own government's weapons. It's extraordinary that governments have knowingly built weapons that would destroy humanity. Why did the US drop these two bombs and how could they ever hope to justify such an act? Well, I think the starting point here is to recognise that there is a prevailing mythology about the Hiroshima bomb. And that is the idea that it was it was dropped to save lives. The idea that the uh, Japanese military were determined to resist an invasion at all costs. They would fight to the last uh, soldier um, and that hundreds of thousands of Allied soldiers would die in an attempt to uh, invade and conquer Japan and destroy the militarist uh, dictatorship that ran the country and, and had bombed Pearl Harbor and so on. This mythology is everywhere. I think it's important to understand that this is a complete and total lie. It's certainly not a lie that, that any invasion would have cost a lot of lives, both of Japanese and invading troops. But for the real story, we only have to turn to the American government's own military leaders at the time. So this is Admiral William D. Lay, who was head of the US Joint Chiefs of Staff at the center of all major military decisions of the US during the Second World War, and frequently described at the time as the second most powerful man in the world, second only to uh, President Roosevelt and then, and then after he died, President Truman. This is what Admiral Lay had to say. It is my opinion that the use of this barbarous weapon, his words, at Hiroshima and Nagasaki was of no material assistance in our war against Japan. The Japanese were already defeated and ready to surrender. Now, this is a man at the centre of American military decision-making. Okay, Dwight D. Eisenhower, President of the United States from 1953 to 61. At the time, he was the Supreme Allied Commander uh, in Europe. In his memoirs, published shortly after leaving the presidency, he recalled the moment he was told the bomb would be used. This is Eisenhower. I voiced my grave misgivings. First, on the basis of my belief that Japan was already defeated and that dropping the bomb was completely unnecessary. Japan was, at that very moment, seeking some way to surrender with a minimum 
loss of face. So if it wasn't to shorten the war, save lives, save the lives of Allied soldiers, what was the real story? Now, there are many people who can, can explain this, but the person I'm going to draw on is Leo Zillard. He was the physicist who had developed the idea of a neutron chain reaction and was at the center of building the bomb. He also opposed using it. This is how he remembered a discussion about the issue with President Truman's personal representative on atomic bomb issues, James F. Burns. Burns would then shortly after this become Secretary of State. This is what Zillard said. Mr. Burns did not argue that it was necessary to use the bomb against the cities of Japan in order to win the war. His view was that our possessing and demonstrating the bomb would make Russia more manageable in Europe. So at the same time, the actual Secretary of State, Henry Simpson, Stimson, just, just before he re retired, was writing in his diary, it may be necessary to have it out with Russia on her relations to Manchuria and Port Arthur, which was um, a Russian port, I think just opposite Japan, and various other parts of North China, and also the relations of China to us over any such tangled wave of problems S1, the code for the bomb, the S1 secret would be dominant. It is a case, he wrote, where we have got to regain the lead and perhaps do it in a pretty rough and realistic way. They, the Russians, can't get along without our help and industries and we have coming into action a weapon which will be unique. Okay, so the short story is, and actually a, a wonderful historian, Gar Alperovitz, has written a very long book on the decision to use the bomb and the mythology surrounding it, which I've drawn on, drawn on. So the question then becomes, why was it that the United States felt it necessary to drop a bomb on Japan, in a sense, to deter Russia? So I think we need to, in a sense, understand a little bit about the situation at the end of the Second World War. Now, at the start of the war, Russia was still relatively weak. We'd had the first five-year plan, uh, forced collectivization, the famine in Ukraine, Stalin's uh, network of, you know, of, of forced labor camps, turmoil in the regime, and so on, as Russia began to industrialize. However, during the war against Germany, Russia massively expanded both its military and productive capacity. By the middle of 1944, Russia had driven Germany out of Russia and was driving them out of Eastern Europe. So the Russian military conquered, then conquered Eastern Germany and captured Berlin in April 1945. So at that point, they were in control of much of Eastern Europe and their industry and military were immensely more powerful than before. Only the US was stronger. And this was not the situation when the US and Russia had become allies when Germany invaded Russia in 1941. The US had long wanted Russia to attack Japan, which of course is right next to Siberia. But with Germany defeated, Eastern, Europe, Eastern Europe now dominated by Russia, things had changed. The moment the atomic bomb had been successfully tested in the US, Truman decided that he wanted Japan to surrender to the US before Russia could get involved and to kill any Russian ambitions of expansion. 
So the Truman administration used all kinds of tactics to delay any Russian participation in the defeat of Japan, including, incidentally, negotiations in which Chinese leaders were sent to Russia to stall negotiations over their involvement in the war so that this would enable them to use the atomic bombs, both to force a quick surrender by Japan and to warn Russia of the new dimension to American military power. So we need to be clear. The bombs were dropped on Hiroshima, Hiroshima and Nagasaki not to win the war against Japan, but as a first strike in the new imperial rivalry between the US and Russia, which would then, of course, dominate the post-war world. And how did people around the world receive news of the bombing? It must have been a tremendous shock. It was it was an absolute shock. And I think there were two things. One is, of course, the sense of relief people felt that the war was finally over. And many thought that the brutality of the Japanese military justified it. But at the same time, when the reports started coming out of the sheer horror of these bombs, the ability of a bomb to destroy an entire city, which was just something way beyond what any conventional bombing was capable of, there was a wave of revulsion around the world. Most interestingly, that wave of revulsion included conservatives and church leaders in the United States, not the kind of people who would later be associated with anti-nuclear, anti-war activism. So the editor of the Catholic World newspaper in the US, Father James Gillis, wrote, We, the people of the United States, have struck the most powerful blow ever delivered against Christian civilization and the moral law. Now, you just think about that statement for a second. They're essentially saying our government has ushered in a new barbarism, something unspeakably terrible. The action of the taken by the United States government, he wrote, was in defiance of every sentiment and every conviction upon which our civilization is based. There was a whole range of uh, military, religious and scientific leader condemned the bombing in the strongest terms. An entire issue of New Yorker magazine was devoted to a report of the experience of six survivors of the bombing and the horrors they experienced. Now, the response of the ruling class, key ruling class figures to this revulsion was to organize a counterattack, something I think that in the ideological sphere we're familiar with today when we look at the way tobacco, the nuclear industry, fossil fuels and so on have organized unbelievable campaigns of disinformation to protect their interests. And so this was led by the president of Harvard University. He got key figures from the administration, including Henry Stimson, this retired Secretary of State, to concoct the alternative story that it was about saving lives, avoiding the necessity of invading Japan, the Japanese refusal to surrender, forced them to use the bomb, and all this other stuff. However, over the years, as all kinds of documents have become fully available and not just the edited extracts used by people like Stimson, the truth has been able to come out. However, the fact is that that lie, that mythology, does live on. Since 1945, the number of nuclear-armed states 
has expanded. It includes obviously Russia now, but Britain, France, China, India, Pakistan, North Korea and Israel. So what's driving the nuclear arms race given the unthinkable cost of the weapons ever being used? The only way to understand this is to understand that the capitalist system really since the late 19th century has been a system which has been dominated by rival imperial powers and imperialist blocs. And I think this is the great strength of the theory argued by uh, Lenin and Bakharin, that imperialism cannot be seriously understood as primarily being about colonies and colonization. That was certainly a feature of the of 19th century imperialism. But but the but the, the forces that led to the First World War was the clash of interests, the competition between rival great powers determined to ex protect and expand their spheres of influence, the, the areas in which their economies profited from, whether they were colonies or other countries with which they had strong trading relationships, their ability to exclude the exports and the investors from other powers and so on. And so the logic of capitalist competition in the economic sphere became fused into competition in the military sphere. And so imperialism became a system of commercial economic competition, shall we say, on, on top of which was added this layer of, of, of military rivalry. And so the two world wars were wars to, to carve up the world and to recarve the world. In both, in, in, in both the First and Second World War, a rising German power attempted to redraw the borders of the world and the existing great powers went to war to stop them. That didn't mean, of course, that the, the, that the winners of the war actually won the peace afterwards. And so this is what we see in um, 1945. The, the, the boundaries of imperial power are redrawn. The British and the French empires shrink dramatically, and that's one of the conditions of American support for Britain in the war. The boundaries of Russian imperialism expand dramatically to include Eastern Europe, and they collide. Russian imperialism, American imperialism collide. The Americans drop the bomb to push back Russian ambitions. So what do the Russians do? What are they going to do when the, the biggest power in the world, whose rulers have openly expressed their absolute utter hatred of the Russian system, I mean, I, I hate, hated it too, the Stalinist system. What do the Stalinists do? They develop their own bomb. Okay, so they develop a bomb to make it clear to the Americans that, you know, any attempt to push Russia back will be met with a weapon the Americans have already used. What do the Americans do? Well, they want to push the Russians back more, they get more bombs. And so you get a nuclear arms race. And so it's the same logic as you get in competition between, you know, rival capitalist businesses. You know, I can remember when, you know, a few years ago before the pandemic, when Virgin and Qantas were putting on extra flights in order to take business from each other. You know, they weren't making necessarily making money from those extra flights, but if they allowed the rival to put on extra flights, they were potentially giving up market share. The same logic we saw as banks lent money to people who couldn't repay their, 
you know, who were inevitably going to be poor risks uh, when they were, were lending money for housing loans, any uh, mortgage lender that refused to lend would see their market grabbed by, by another. It's exactly the same logic. So you look at the countries that have got uh, nuclear weapons, Britain, France, China. You look at France in Europe. Why is it that France is so much more important in the EU than Italy and Spain, which aren't that much smaller uh, economically? It's because France is the one EU state that has nuclear weapons. Britain the same. Britain's influence in economic negotiations, in political toing and froing, is immensely strengthened by the fact that it has nuclear weapons. India and Pakistan have fought wars. Of course, they want their military to be able to fight as effectively as possible. China has been uh, under attack by the United States ever since 1949. Why wouldn't it develop those weapons that, that can protect its, its power to rule its own, its own area? The United States, as much as it hates the North, Korea, North Korean regime and would not like to take action against it, actually is restrained by the fact that the North Koreans have nuclear weapons. A terrible fact, but the logic is, is, is inescapable. So I think that explains why they've done it. Yeah, I'll leave it there for the moment. Now, thankfully, at least up to this point, there's never been a nuclear war between the US and Russia who hold the by far the largest number of nuclear warheads. And that's often been described as a situation arising from mutually assured destruction. The idea that a nuclear war would have no winners, that if one side launched weapons, they would be as just as much destroyed as, as the other. Can we rely on the idea of mutually assured destruction to have confidence that no one is going to start a nuclear war? On the contrary, I think, I think actually mutually assured destruction is exactly what we face. So let's begin with the most elementary fact about mutually assured destruction. It only works because each side with nuclear weapons and facing pressure from a rival imperial power is actually ready to launch a massive nuclear strike at a moment's notice. So even as we sit here talking today, there are American bombers in the air loaded with nuclear weapons ready to bomb China and Russia. There are Russian and Chinese planes, missiles ready to be launched at a moment's notice. Both sides know it. But the point is that we are, we are literally a hair trigger away from uh, nuclear annihilation. And what is most chilling is that nuclear annihilation, we have been within, literally within minutes of a nuclear war, I don't know what the number is, what, a dozen, 15 times in the last 70 years. I mean, some of the stories about the actual almost destruction of uh, the world are, are, just, are just unbelievable. One of the most, most chilling is the situation in 1983 where the Russian radar network, their early warning network, received notification that inbound missiles had been detected. Now, the Soviet Union's strategy was simple. It was the same as the American strategy. Immediate and compulsory nuclear counterattack. Now, fortunately for the world, 
the lieutenant colonel in charge of that particular uh, defense force, that particular unit of the defense force in the Soviet Union, a guy called Stanislav Petrov, didn't believe that this was actually a nuclear attack. Now, can you imagine? Here is this guy in the Soviet Union. His job is to is to identify incoming missiles and automatically launch a counterattack. And he decides that when his uh, radar, his system, his satellite system is telling him that that's the war has started, he makes the decision, no, it hasn't. I mean, it's extraordinary. And there, there are reasons why he made that that call, partly, I suspect, because he, he knew the consequences of starting a nuclear war, but also because he knew that the satellite system, you know, had been unreliable. And also, too, that it was only picking up one missile, whereas, obviously, if there's a, the Americans were attacking the Soviet Union, there'd be, you know, large numbers coming in. And so he, he refused, he refused to launch a counter-strike. Uh, and it turned out that, that the reason for this false alarm was a rare alignment of sunlight on high altitude clouds. This is the natural phenomenon which almost saw humanity destroyed. And yeah, his career was wrecked uh, as a result of that. And there's been a whole string of these. In the Cuban Missile Crisis in 1962, the Americans expected that before a nuclear first strike by the Soviet Union, there would be sabotage. Then around midnight, in, on the 25th of October 1962, a guard in uh, Duluth at a detection centre saw a figure climbing the security fence. He shot at this figure climbing the security fence and activated the sabotage alarm, which automatically set off similar alarms at other bases in the region. At another field in Wisconsin, a faulty alarm system caused the klaxon to sound instead which ordered the Air Defence Command nuclear arm interceptors into the air. The pilots of these interceptors had been told there would be no practice alert drills, and according to uh, once political scientists, these pilots believed that a nuclear war was started. That's what they believed, the pilots. Before the planes were able to take off, the base commander contacted Duluth, learned of the error, and one of these officers drove his car onto the runway, flashing his lights to stop the aircraft from taking off. That is how a nuclear war was stopped. And this is just a, one example. Actually, the intruder was a bear. So a bear climbing the fence at a detection center almost started a nuclear war. And it was stopped by an officer driving his car onto the runway, flashing his lights. So that's just two examples. But I think the other thing to keep in mind is that mutually assured destruction, you know, between the US and USSR, it worked for a series of very, very specific reasons. The first is that the US bloc, US-led bloc of Western powers, including, you know, Britain, France, Australia, and so on, the division between them and the USSR and its bloc was pretty even. You know, there was a line drawn through Europe, down through the middle of Berlin. The Russians had their side. The Americans had their side. There was very little economic interaction between them. There were a range of proxy wars, you know, in Africa, Asia, and so on. But essentially, the geographical range was fairly even. 
They had roughly the same nuclear weapons, you know, might be 50% more or less or whatever, but it was not an order of magnitude. You know, the Russians were the second greatest economy in the world. But the other thing was, too, it was an era of substantial economic growth. You know, so the, the degree of crisis that the rival imperial powers felt, while they felt under pressure and there were economic crises and downturns and so on, they weren't the kind of crises which drove one or other of the powers to try to do something reckless in order to improve its economic or military position. I mean, even the worst moment in this period, the Cuban Missile Crisis, the Americans, you know, and the Russians, you know, had the standoff. The world did come to the brink of nuclear war, but there was no sense of crisis that drove the Russians to push ahead. They retreated. Negotiations led to a deal in which the Americans pulled their nuclear weapons uh, out of Turkey. I think the thing we need to understand is that all the kind of stabilising factors in the Cold War standoff, the, the Cold War nuclear arms race, the Cold War version of mutually assured destruction, those stabilising factors no longer apply. China's military power is dwarfed by that of the US and its allies. America's got 15 times as many nuclear weapons. At the same time, American economic dominance is absolutely in retreat uh, in the face of China. Its economic power in the world is declining. So for quite a long time, we have argued that America's ability to economically dominate the world the way it did for 30 years after the Second World War, that decline would drive the American state to more and more turn to military solutions. And so in a sense, what we've got is a Chinese imperialism that is growing very rapidly economically and challenging American, American economically, and the US using uh, its military power and all kinds of provocations to attempt to constrain China. And so this is an unstable, automatically unstable situation. And of course, then you've got all the trigger points, Taiwan, the islands claimed by both Japan and China, uh, and so on. It's also, too, a much more economically unstable environment. The economic crises have been so much more, so much deeper. You know, we've had a, we had a whole range of global financial crises and since the early 1990s, not least in Asia, the global financial crisis it was global. So, and of course, we've got the fact that the Americans are constantly engaged in all kinds of provocations around the Chinese coast, supported by the Australian military, you know, leading to near confrontations and sometimes direct confrontations with Chinese military forces and vice versa. You know, it's a very, very unstable environment. The economy is less stable. The, the parameters of influence of the two great uh, imperial blocs are much less stable than they used to be. So I think we've got every reason to fear you know, a nuclear war between China and the United States. But I think we should also be clear that the lesser uh, nuclear powers are just as likely to turn to nuclear weapons. China and India, all the wars they've fought, the you know constant economic crisis, the Pakistani regime, one that, that barely maintains control in its own country, India ruled by a most an appalling regime whose social basis is people who basically look to Hitler 
all kinds of ways that the tension between Pakistan and India could explode into a war that involved nuclear weapons. And of course, Israel too in the Middle East. Who's to say they won't use nuclear weapons if challenged by Iran or some other uh, regime in the region in the context of some political or economic crisis? So I think the idea that mutually assured destruction will hold these people back is just is, is ridiculous. These rulers have seen what nuclear weapons can do. Intellectually, they know what they can do, and yet they build more and more, more and more sophisticated weapons, and they, they intend to use them if they are put under pressure, and they make that absolutely clear in their own publicly available strategic documents. Australia has flirted with the idea of accessing nuclear weapons in the past, and now it's committed to buying eight nuclear-powered submarines at the obscene cost of at least $170 billion. What should our response be? Oh, we've got to. We've got to fight this with everything we can. These submarines are being bought not to, quote-unquote, defend the mainland of Australia, but to go to war with China. Nuclear submarines have the great advantage of their ability to stay underwater for extremely long periods of time which is, of course, what you need if you want your submarines to operate in the South China Sea and that kind of, you know, the area in the immediate vicinity of China. That's why they're being bought. I think the other thing we need to be clear is that the nuclear submarines we are buying, while the Australian government says it will fit them with conventional weapons, they are nuclear-capable submarines. So they could be fitted with nuclear weapons. So I think, yeah, I think for all the reasons I've outlined, Australia's essentially lining up as part of an American-led imperial attempt to constrain and weaken China militarily and economically. Uh, It's prepared to risk global war to do it. Uh, And if we've got any sense that we want to stop this this horror, we have to fight it. We don't have to like the Chinese regime to understand that 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 our, our, our government is playing a leading role in pushing this rivalry ahead. Our responsibility is to stop them doing what they're doing, militarising politics in Australia, and as I said, flirting with global war. And that's dealing with the AUKUS situation. But what do we need to do more generally to make sure that no nuclear weapon is ever used again? Well, I, 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 perhaps I'm not an optimist here. I think, I think it's going to be very difficult to stop uh, nuclear weapons being used. But what we do know is, first of all, that no ruling class will voluntarily give up nuclear weapons. Even when the Russian regime, the Soviet regime, was defeated you know, in the Cold War, uh, they held on to a very large number of nuclear weapons. There was a, an agreement to reduce them, but they held on to them. So there's only one way to get rid of nuclear weapons, and that is to that is to essentially destroy the ability of our states, our governments, and our ruling classes to go to war. It's as simple and as uncomplicated as that. And I think the the really positive thing is that we have, in our experience over the last 150 years, a lot of experience of anti-war movements. The anti-Vietnam War movement got the American military out of Vietnam, or it was played a major role in getting the American military out of Vietnam. We know that the First World War was stopped by the revolution, first of all, in Russia, and then a revolutionary upheaval in Germany. 
So we know what needs to happen. Our responsibility, of course, is to destroy the ability of the Australian state to make war on other other big powers or, of course, to terrorise neighbouring countries and bully neighbouring countries. I think it's really useful here to understand something about our anti-war movements. So since the Second World War, there's essentially been two era of anti-war movements. The first is the era of the 1960s when horror at nuclear, uh, the potential for nuclear war, uh, meant that there was a massive peace movement organised by, amongst others, the Communist Party of Australia and a range of other organisations. And that movement was, was, I think, while it, it, you know, it, it, you know, you, we, of course, you, you want to stop nuclear weapons. The truth is that that movement was in part the Communist Party attempting to prosecute uh, a, a movement to the advantage of the Russian state, the rival state. And, and it aimed to do that by harnessing support from all kinds of conservative forces in Australia. So it was a very conservative movement, very respectable and I think the other thing which, which reduced its ability to actually make real change was what had happened in the war preceding it. When Russia was an ally, the Communist Party was the, was the win-the-war party. It had adopted an incredible nationalism. It had said to Australian workers, your interests lie with the victory of the Australian state in the Second World War. And so we have this conservative essentially respectable movement, which really achieved very, very little in terms of pushing back on nuclear weapons, the drive to war and so on. The second anti-war movement we got, of course, was the movement against the Vietnam War and its aftermath. And the difference is the movement against the Vietnam War in Australia and America was opposed to our ruling class. We wanted our ruling class defeated. We wanted Australian soldiers, American soldiers, brought home. Uh, We wanted the attempt to run Vietnam, to control Vietnam, defeated. We wanted our side defeated. It was a radical movement and a radicalising movement. And so what you then see when the issue of uranium mining comes up and when, of course, the issue of, you know, a whole new era of nuclear weapons in the early 1980s comes up, you see that movement is a radical movement. The anti-Iranian movement was so much more radical than the peace movement of the 60s because it was born out of this movement that hated the ruling class, hated nuclear weapons, didn't identify particularly with the state and was very much shaped by the anti-Vietnam movement. So what that tells us is if we want to build an effective anti-war movement, it needs to be absolutely linked to the forces in Australian society who are fighting the ruling class today, which is, of course, those workers who have the confidence to fight over bread and butter issues. And the politics of the movement have to be the politics of anti-nationalism, the politics that said that when our state is armed, it is a force for evil in the world. It's a force for oppression and exploitation and the domination of others. It has to be an anti-nationalist movement an anti-capitalist movement and a movement against our own government. With those politics, we can actually do something to really push back against the danger of nuclear war.
And of course, the fact that the Albanese government is running around saying, we can't afford this, we can't afford pandemic leave, we can't afford free rat tests, we can't afford the things people need, we're not really going to spend any serious money on social housing, but we are going to spend hundreds of billions on nuclear submarines to fight China in the South China Sea. That gives ordinary workers a direct material interest in not just fighting for their economic needs, but also fighting against this new militarism. It's a sobering topic, but that was a really useful discussion. Thanks, Phil. No worries, David. Great.